0: So I'm gonna start by asking each of the panelists to briefly introduce yourselves and uh, explain uh, uh, where you work and, and what you do there. Starting to my left with Paul.
1: All right, <clears throat> thanks Mark. Um, my name is Paul Chow. So I'm one of three co-founders of a company called Ledger X. Ledger X aims to be an exchange and clearinghouse for derivatives on Bitcoin. And in particular, our focus is physically, quote unquote, physically settle Bitcoin. For our customers that need to hedge, um, it's very important that they have access to Bitcoin for other aspects of the business as well. So, I've been involved in Bitcoin since 2011. Jacob. Hi, thanks Mark.
2: I am Jacob Farber. I'm the general counsel of R3. R3 is a consortium originally of 42 large global banks, mostly supply side, that have come together to explore how to apply distributed ledger technology to financial services infrastructure, and we're both developing our own architecture, uh, which will be open, and then proprietary applications, use cases, products that will sit on top of our architecture and and probably others.
0: Joe.
3: Hi, I'm Joseph Lupin. I'm one of the founders of uh, a platform, a decentralized application platform called Ethereum. Which is a generalization of the Bitcoin platform. It makes use of the same components effectively as Bitcoin, um, but enables far more use cases and enables those use cases to be built far more easily by average programmers. Um, I'm also founder of a company called Consensus, which builds decentralized applications for the Ethereum ecosystem and also does consulting work for private enterprise based on the Ethereum technology.
0: And Ryan.
4: Hi, I'm Ryan Zagone. I'm the director of regulatory relations with Ripple. Uh, Ripple is a technology company that provides real-time uh, cross-border payment services to financial institutions. I also sit on the steering committee of the Federal Reserve's Faster Payments Initiative.
0: And just to get a sense of, uh, of the audience here so we can uh, tailor the conversation appropriately, how many people here have worked in ha- work or have worked in financial markets or financial services? Pretty, pretty, pretty good representation here. Um, and how many have worked in crypto technology? That's everyone else. All right. Uh, we'll dive in. Jacob, you uh, at R3, you're working with a, uh, a wide assortment of financial institutions from around the world. Um, why are they interested in, uh, I, I don't want to say DLT, but, but blockchain uh, technology? What, what problems are they looking to solve that they think this is appropriate for? The,
2: the best answer? is we don't know yet.
0: And, and let me tell you
2: what I mean by that. You know, there, there is an incredible amount of enthusiasm for distributed ledger technology, and not just in the financial industry, but, but, but sort of throughout large enterprises at this point. All of the large banks and financial institutions have large teams of people dedicated to trying to figure out where they can apply the technology to some, some pieces of what they do today. It turns out to be a mammothly complicated question. How, how do you take this new technology? You're not going to do a flash cut to a, some future state of distributed ledger technology where we natively issue assets on ledger and trade and settle and clear them, and you know, and everything settles instantly and there's you know unicorns and rainbows. It's going to be a much messier, iterative process. You have forty years of, of bank IT systems. There's regulatory mandates, and figuring out where you can go to a bank CTO and make a business case for an implementation. That's the real world. You have to be able to say, okay, if we, if we do this thing with distributed ledger technology, it's gonna cost this, it's gonna cost this much more to integrate it with our existing systems, and it will, you hope, save this. And if this is greater than this, it's worth doing. And, and so in, in the early stages of the technology and its implementation, there'll be pretty discrete use cases. You know, payments is an obvious one, same thing that Ripple is working on. Uh, trade finance is something we're working on. Uh, but a lot of it will be reporting and just solving the problem that's, that really exists in every kind of financial transaction category of some percentage of, of trades between financial actors break because they end up with a different view of what just happened. So even post-trade reporting, where you have a process for coming to between two counterparties, a mutable consensus about the trade you just made is going to result in incredible cost savings because whenever trades break and don't do flow say, through, trade, the
0: trade breaks. What is that?
2: Yeah, it, 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 it's pretty simple. You know, two 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 financial institutions that are party to a to a transaction. It can be any asset class. It can be a, a, a security purchase. It could be a, a derivative agreement. Uh, it it often happens, and there's some percentage in across asset categories that when you're done the two sides have a different view as to what just happened, right? They, they, don't, they don't agree, their internal records don't agree, don't reflect the same outcome post-trade. Uh, and then you gotta get on the phone and you call and it's a very manual process and it imposes billions of dollars of aggregate costs. So just eliminating the, the issues that broken trades cause will save the industry a lot of money. Beyond that, in the longer term, when you get into the world where where the, these technologies are advanced enough and there's enough interconnection among the various implementations of distributed ledgers that are all gonna that are springing up, then you get to a future state where you where you can natively issue assets and you have all of the the benefits of potentially functionally immediate settlement and you know never broken transaction. But that's we're a long way between here and there, and a lot of what we're doing at R3 is unlike, you know, many people in the space have built solutions and then are going to the financial institutions to, to sell it. At what, what we're doing is working with the, the member banks and, and other financial institutions to look inside their systems and to do the hard work of figuring out where you really can solve problems meaningfully with distributed ledger technology and then going to build it and I would say we're in the early stages of, of that process and really coming to a reckoning of, of where the technology will shine and where some of it might turn out to be hype.
0: Now, Joe and Paul, both of you had previously worked on Wall Street. Um, and both of you got into the cryptocurrency space relatively early. Can you describe what intrigued you uh, with, with, with having a financial markets background when you found out about Bitcoin? What intrigued you about it and what made you say, aha, I, I see what they're trying to, I see what they're doing there and there's something to it.
3: Sure. So I, I would say uh, foremost it was the trust minimization aspect of, uh, of blockchain technologies, um, essentially uh, enabling <coughs> uh, people to have more control and more understanding of uh, what's going on um, uh, with the, uh, distributed ledgers or certain kinds. Um, essentially, you can view those as a, a kind of database technology where everybody maintains their own copy of the data or has access to their own copy of the data and access to their own copy of the rules that uh, potentially modulate the data. Uh, and so that makes for a, a trust minimized infrastructure. Um, so. Paul,
1: what
0: uh, what, what, what uh, kind of put the light bulb over your head with Bitcoin.
1: I think for me the most exciting thing was really like this idea of an open access ledger that anybody could use and anybody could, importantly, program on. So if you're a 12-year-old kid with no relationships with Wall Street, but you have a great idea for an application that you want to build for your friends in your spare time, before it was impossible to get access to any of the ledgers that banks use right now. But now, for the first time, if you're a talented 12-year-old programmer, you can build an application that, whether you like Bitcoin as a currency or not, it is moving some sort of value around in an automated way. So I think that's very exciting for, for me personally, because I think we'll see a lot of innovation. Um, we'll, we'll find like the next Mark Zuckerberg of finance, potentially, with this open access approach. You want the people that can just tinker on the side and not have to go through a lot of these meetings and, and things to get access to all these systems that banks currently use. So that, that's really important. Also, you know, I worked on Wall Street, yes, at Goldman Sachs. And you know, the, the business model there is very, very high touch. So. Very large clients with a lot of depth that they need, a lot of coverage. Um, That's fine for one model, but there's also, I think, room for a model where it's very low touch, where the amounts that we're talking about that people want to save or invest are not that significant um, to justify a Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley kind of going to that market. Um, And it just ties into sort of my background, kind of a long-term interest in microfinance. I see a lot of very exciting potential applications for Bitcoin and microfinance.
0: And and you've hit on one one of the big themes that we're going to get to in just a couple minutes, which is the whole question of permission versus permissionless, open versus uh, controlled access. Before we go there, um, Ryan, you you mentioned that you're uh, involved in the Fed's uh, payments improvement project. And I think that that, if you talk about that for a minute, because that's a really... Uh, useful way to kind of set the stage here to to look at you know what uh, the issues are with the legacy financial system that potentially uh, these technologies could address so can can you can you just uh, just describe what's going on there and um, and 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 maybe relate like how um, some of these technologies have uh, entered the conversation
4: certainly so within the Federal Reserve's task force Uh, It's an effort to build a framework for what future faster payment systems in the U.S. uh, should reflect. Um, The Fed has has not said we're going to build a solution. We want the private sector to build a solution, but we're going to provide the framework with which companies should be building to. Um, We have new demands on a payment system. It's clear today payments aren't broken. They work. Um, But we have identified some inefficiencies, uh, particularly around the cross-border perspective, where it takes four to five days to settle. Uh, There's a lack of visibility in the payment. Um,
0: And just to stop you, when we say settle, so in other words, four or five days between when I say send $5 to Ryan's account and when you can actually use that money.
4: Exactly. So there's this four or five day window where the the funds aren't accessible. Um, That produces a lot of cost and risk. There's a lack of visibility in that payment. Um, I could literally FedEx a box of cash to Europe and have better tracking. Than I can to sending a payment through a correspondent bank. Don't do that. Uh, yeah. like that. That's the level of inefficiency or the structural problem we have in, in cross border uh, financial institutions or cross border payments. So we have new demands for faster payments, uh, more transparency, uh, greater volume, and lower risk. Uh, these are collective goals we've identified in this, in this task force. The, with new technology or new demands, you need new technology to underpin those systems. So several. Uh, several companies, including Ripple, were focused on cross-border payments, have come to the table as part of this effort. Uh, we sit on the steering committee, and I, I feel there's a recognition both within the task force and in our comments previously from the CFTC, we have new demands on systems. There's new technologies that can provide new, uh, new features, products, and services. Um, so that is, that is there's a lot of, uh, there's a ripeness to this at this moment. Uh, where we have to balance that is in setting, identifying the new risk that it creates and setting frameworks for that. Um, with that in mind, I also urge us to look at the, ex- the risk of existing systems, continuing to rely on outdated systems for new and, and, and uh, higher volume and higher value payments. So it's, it's a question of balancing risk. Um,
0: and, and, and why is this distributed ledger uh, an attract- an, uh, potentially attractive?
4: So from a, from a payments perspective, instead of the five days to settle, uh, Ripple can settle a payment in about five seconds. Um, we reduce the, we have full transparency from all counterparties, so sending and receiving bank can track not only the counterparties that we're using just in the payment, um, but where the payment is physically during that time. Um, and they can pr- pass that on to the consumer for, for new products, low-value cross-border payments, uh, greater transparency in the payments. and from our early uh, early trials at uh, lower cost that we can pass down to the consumer as well.
0: So I want to get into kind of the elephant in the room here, which is the the, the, the whole debate around, uh, you know, there's various terms, public or private blockchains, permissioned or permissionless ledgers. Uh, J- Jacob, can you explain what a permissioned ledger is, how that's different from the, uh, the open system that Paul described? and why is this something that the financial institutions appear to be converging on?
2: Uh, I, I will, although I, first a comment on sort of the, the elephant in the room and the characterization of a debate. There, there, there is some discussion. We'll talk about permissioned versus permissionless, open versus closed. Um, but I, I don't think we, we have a view. The, the banks and financial institutions tend to be focused at the moment on solutions involving what permission ledgers, and I'll explain that in just a moment. But there's no religion on that point, and it's just that it seems fit to purpose for the moment. Let let me now answer the question. So think first about Bitcoin. Anybody who downloads the Bitcoin open source software and runs it on their computer has joined the Bitcoin network. Uh, as a user, and if they opt to, they can become a miner, which is the the subset of users that sort of self-select to participate in transaction verification, and not worth going into because that's a rabbit hole. Uh, So so two thoughts. First, the, the notion that anybody can join, and then distinguish in your minds users of a network, so the nodes on the network that are just engaging in transactions from another set of users, or nodes on the network, or computers on the network, that, that maybe a subset of the users may not, but are, are, the, are the, the users of the network, the subgroup, maybe the separate group, that actually verifies the transactions. Right? So in existing models, the users of PayPal are, are the users, and PayPal is the verifying node. On the card networks, the cards are the verifying networks. Um, The the systems that financial institutions are looking at to date tend to assume that some number of financial institutions will be the network operators, will be the the nodes on the distributed ledger that one way or the other, through one technology or another, are verifying the the transactions. Um, There are reasons for that that have to do with regulatory considerations. Uh, there's this not very specific, but but probably reasonably correct sense that from a regulatory perspective, knowing who the, the entities are that are running a network is important if you're a regulated financial institution using the network. Part of it's because the financial institutions are, are looking at these systems to replace systems that are currently permissioned. You know, think stock exchanges. You know, not anybody can can, you know, Belly up to the bar at the New York Stock Exchange and start transacting. Um, and, and, and some of it's because so far that the technologies that are that are permissioned seem to be better suited to financial applications for a variety of tactical reasons. But, there, there's, but to the extent that that we were presented with a solution that solved all of our problems and was regulatory acceptable and was better and it was an open system, I don't know that that wouldn't be just as appealing.
0: Two, two things I wanna drill down, down on um, in your answer. One, um, you, you, you noted that the existing system is permissioned. So if you build a new permission system, what, how is this new permission system different and better than the existing permission system? I I
2: don't know, and and, and we're falling into the trap you always do when you talk about this technology because you talk about it as some vague abstraction. Until there is some implementation that replaces some piece of some current system, I can't tell you. In theory, though, you have the the benefits of immutability, of of never having broken trades. You have speed of execution. Uh, You have the ability, we haven't talked about smart contracts on this panel, to, to automate transactions, to build the business logic of commercial deals in, into the network, right, which opens up all sorts of possibilities, which we can talk about separately. Uh, I think it's largely a combination of those three things to varying degrees depending on the application.
0: Uh, one, one more follow-up point on that. Decentral, or not completely decentralizing, but decentralizing it to an extent. Does that, does that actually make things more efficient? Wouldn't it be more efficient if you had, uh, you know, to make things go faster, if you had one central, uh, all of the things being equaled, if you had one central um, ledger as opposed to uh, several different nodes? I mean, you know, Bitcoin takes 10 minutes to clear because, you know, every, everyone's got to get in sync across the world. Um, uh, it, where is the efficiency gain?
3: Well, it is logically a centralized ledger, um, but implemented in a decentralized fashion so that uh, uh, many people can trust
4: in it. I I, I didn't understand that. (laughs) (laughs) When we think Uh, about this debate of permission versus permissionless, it's often cast as as a black and white issue, when in reality there's several shades of gray. Um, There are systems that are completely open on one end, like Bitcoin. Anyone can join, anyone can transact. There's no hurdle to jump to use it. And there's completely closed systems like we know today, like the stock exchange that Jacob referenced. There's several systems in the middle, Ripple being a hybrid. It's open where financial institutions can freely join, but then we layer on a permission aspect where a bank has to authorize the counterparties it wants to work with. It'll select banks in, say, Europe or or, uh, Australia, but it may say we're not comfortable making a transaction with a bank in X country. Um, We kind of view it as a Facebook model. Um, where you, you join Facebook freely and then you have to authorize your friends or who you want to actually engage with. Now from a use case perspective, which is better, is, which is better, a permission versus permissionless or a hybrid, it often depends on the use case. There, we're talking several use cases here from payments, securities trading, uh, post-trade reconciliation, swap repositories, all of those different very distinct use cases are going to have different credentials in the architecture that they want. So in, when, we, when I approach these, these conversations about open versus closed, I often frame it around what use case are you trying to enable and what problems are you trying to solve? And we architect it with that in mind.
0: Paul, Paul can you think of use cases where permission works better than permissionless and vice versa?
1: <clears throat> yeah, I mean, even though, you know, I should note that even though LedgerX, all the work that we do is basically around permissionless ledgers, we, we definitely know there's a, a space in the market for permission ledgers. I mean, certainly our account, our, our clients' account balances and the fees we charge them are not on some public ledger, you know, that, that anybody can view at any time. You know, so, so permission ledgers are hugely important for very sensitive pieces of information, credentials, um, trading history. In our in our kind of context, it's just I think the real elephant in the room when we talk about this debate is whether elements of the Bitcoin proposal. Makes sense in a permissioned environment. When so, you say the
0: proposal, you mean the original white paper. Right.
1: So Satoshi's famous paper. originally 2008 white paper. Um, because Bitcoin's a collection of a lot of things. You know, it's the idea of chaining blocks that contain transactions. But it's also, even though this is much made fun of sometimes, it's also mining too. So you know, I think we sometimes take elements of the original Bitcoin proposal, just tear them out, and sometimes think we still have the same benefits when that might be true. It might not be though. You know, for example, I know a lot of people that are taking an approach where they chain all their transactions and their blocks together, but there's no mining at all. And so, but they still think that it's some sort of unbreakable chain when in fact, that's not the case. So so I think we have to be a little careful when we're translating technologies between kind of a permissionless environment in which a lot of these components were designed for, and now putting them to something where we have multiple credentials, security kind of layers to protect certain sensitive pieces of information.
2: There's also a vocabulary problem here as I'm listening to us because we're not making a distinction. When we talk about permission versus permissionless, you also have to think about whether you're talking about at the level of all of the users of the network or of the operators. And I was sort of answering from the operator perspective. From the perspective of the user, I can tell you that the world's financial services regulators are definitely not okay with transactions between unknown counterparties right you have to know your customer for anti money laundering purposes and that's a that's essentially uniform around the world so it, it, we, we, we could someday get to a future state where we trust math you know where we, we trust the, the central ideas underlying Bitcoin instead but we're, we're nowhere near there and certainly at the level of users of a distributed ledger the 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 parties who are ultimately engaged in the transactions who are, or maybe the customers of in our cases, the financial institutions operating the network, you're always going to have to know who they are. Now, it may not be publicly viewable on the ledger, right? But you're always going to have a financial institution who has done, know your customer, who's identified the user of the network and has allowed them to participate, or or more likely, who is engaging in transactions on the ledger on behalf of their customer. So, just separating out in in our minds knowing who the users are from knowing who the operators are is is sort of helpful i think
0: and is is that is that a source of some of the kind of the, the regulatory considerations that you mentioned that if you're participating in this open network and you might not know who some of who some of the other participants are that it for all you know it could be uh, uh, you know, someone in Iran or or, or some other uh, country that's that's been the subject of sanctions is that is is that the source of this, this sort of regulatory impetus to 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 go towards the permission system?
2: You know, I I, I hate to do it since we, we don't have a product that I can talk about. You know, we don't have an example in front of us. I can't really answer your question because you're asking it at a level of, of abstraction. And I'd love to hear your answer because mm-hmm. that's sort
4: of directly germane to you guys. Yeah. I, I don't think so. Um, I, to your answer, no. When we think about money laundering and terrorist financing, it happens in today's system. So that doesn't mean we stop all banks from accessing today's existing networks. What it does say is the burden should go on the financial institution, on, on each financial institution, to know who it's transacting with and what the transaction is for. So the same concept that we use when, we talk, when a regulator talks about or actively um, uh, regulates a system for money laundering applies to these systems as well. I think a big advantage we've seen, Bitcoin was undoubtedly the technology breakthrough, but like most technology breakthroughs, there's been several iterations upon that. Uh, We have seen this emergence from this consumer model, which most of the conversation earlier today was about, to an enterprise approach, where financial institutions themselves are using the technology. Um, Ripple is an example of this enterprise model. Uh, Ripple sits within the existing consumer protection frameworks that a bank is already subject to, and most other <laughs> security uh, and resiliency requirements as well. Like we're regulated as a technology service provider under the FFIEC. Um, there are actually a number of existing frameworks that this falls into already, the enterprise approach. Um, we see that as a clear distinction between the consumer-facing uh, or the, the Bitcoin model, which is direct-to-consumer <laughs> and does pose those gaps of consumer protection, which has been the focus of a lot of the regulatory discussion.
3: Yeah. So on the... Uh... On the permission versus permissionless issue, it's useful to think about how internet technologies developed. Essentially, it was a, a public permissionless, permissionless network, and uh, the identification of certain use cases enabled the creation of intranet technologies, which were effectively a permissioned internet system. Um, and so, use case driven, um, we are building products for the public Ethereum network, um, and for our consulting clients, uh, we're building private enterprise blockchains based on the exact same technology, Uh, consortium architectures based on the same technology, and we can give um, our consulting clients, we can give their employees and their vendors and service providers and their customers the same identity access portal, the same wallets so that they can uh, use use cases that are either uh, on that private company's blockchain or on a consortium blockchain that they're involved in or even maybe there are some use cases that a company um, would put on a public blockchain. And some use cases or some business processes we believe will be splayed across all three. um, And so you can effectively uh, run those um, from the same infrastructure.
0: Here's a question I'm sure you get a lot. What is the difference between a permissioned blockchain and just a regular old database?
3: in a regular database. Yeah, or database um, as we, have, so as we data, all understand that. Yeah, database technology is maybe 60 years old and it evolved from flat files through SQL, through NoSQL, um, uh, replication as um, the web became more capable, um, sharding of databases were necessary and replication of different instances of a database. Um, be- sharding meaning? Sharding meaning, meaning uh, splitting data up uh, into different databases. So for instance, Facebook or Twitter um, can't possibly have a single system that, uh, that serves all their customers. So they, they try to um, slice up the data that's relevant to, to different uh, groups. Um, and so if you take that notion of replication and make that a first class citizen, um, then you effectively have a next generation database technology where everybody has uh, um, their own copy of the data and their own copy of the rules that uh, modify the data. Um, and again, that's the basis for trust minimized business processes and interactions. Um, you, can't, you can't get that same trust minimization in a centralized database or a database that's under the control of a single group or a single party. Um, On a blockchain, I can improperly manipulate the data in my local copy, but unless I get a majority of people or actors on the system to agree with that manipulation, it's gonna be um, discarded. On a centralized database, uh, a rogue system administrator or corrupt CFO or a hacker um, could um, go into the system and change old data or change current data, and even companies could even change the business logic rules um, by which the system operates, by which they're uh, which serve their customers uh, in ways in which their customers wouldn't be aware.
0: So, what what I'm hearing is that the the virtue here of of, of the distributed model is not so much efficiency but honesty.
3: Absolutely, there there are. Great efficiencies in blockchain technologies uh, that will um, um, be available to business, um, specifically the financial industry. Um, there are efforts right now to put identity on the blockchain. Um, closely associated with that are reputation systems built built on top of that. KYC.
0: Um, to- KYC stands for Know your customer. Oh, your customer. It's not it's not a a, a chicken restaurant for those. <laughs> Um, uh, two other
3: foundational elements are tokenizing fiat currencies, and, and we're in some projects um, that are uh, focusing on that and uh, either issuing securities natively on the blockchain or dematerializing existing securities. Um, Sounds like to- Star Trek. Right? Token- tokenizing them, putting them on the blockchain, and enabling the uh, the extremely efficient, uh, virtually instantaneous clearing and settlement mechanisms that uh, blockchain technologies can
0: accomplish. So, something you said a minute ago that that, that I want to home in on here. Um, so, if we're if the distributed model of a ledger is is minimizing the need for trust, and if we're expediting settlement to the point where the trade is the settlement, then why is it necessary for from the point of view of regulators to know who the validating nodes are? Um,
3: well, that, I think that's mostly based on the, the laws of the country. Um, one could imagine a system um, which is effectively controlled by reputation where your public persistent reputation on the system is what uh, gives people the information that they need um, to trust you. Um, I don't think we're, I don't think we've built sophisticated enough reputation systems so that we don't need um, the regulators to protect the consumer at this point.
4: In our our view, when a a regulator asks a financial institution who is validating your transactions, who's Mm -hmm. operating your system, it's not a sufficient answer to say we don't know. The financial institution can't you
0: Can't you say we don't have to know? Maybe someday.
4: Maybe, potentially, but that's not, not now, where, where we're at now. Banks and regulators themselves want the certainty of knowing who is responsible for security, operational resiliency, and how the network will behave if something goes wrong. Like who's responsible uh, for, for correcting an error? And those are questions that are, are essential when we're looking at market infrastructure. We have to answer those within the design of the system. Um, in our view, we hold that quite firmly, and that's why we've designed the system we have designed at Ripple, uh, which is, to clarify, not based on Bitcoin. We're mm-hmm. completely separate from, from Bitcoin and, and that development. Uh, but we, we hold that quite firmly, that we, a bank needs to know, and a network operator should be held responsible for the operation of the system. I think that might differ some from other views out there, I know.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean which, which set of regulations, though? I mean, is this just sort of like a general regulatory preference, or is, is, there, is there a law or, or, or rule that they're pointing to? When they- there's,
4: not a, there's not a rule for how you regulate a payment mm-hmm. system. Most payment systems fall under some type of systemic risk uh, consideration. So either in the U.S. it would be through, through FSOC or from a primary, primary regulator. Um, but at this point, the way the technology works is so different from how banks know payments work and how regulator is used to uh, viewing and regulating a system that we'll have to see, as Jacob mentioned earlier, incremental change as we move forward. We think one uh, crucial step in that is is not going fully open where you don't know, you can't uh, identify who's operating the system. It's an incremental change to perhaps, uh, well, in Ripple, where you do know you authorize the counterparties that you'll be transacting with and who will be confirming your transactions. So there is a knowledge. It's
3: important to recognize that the cat is out of the bag, that um, these technologies are out there, they're very powerful and um, foundationally, they're non-regulatable. So there is um, the ability to establish self-sovereign identity and control over your own assets and uh, the ability to interact with different counterparties on these permissionless systems. And it's a global context so um, different rules apply to different jurisdictions and some jurisdictions don't have many rules at all. Uh, So the technology foundationally should be able to subserve the entire planet and if you're operating, if you're offering a financial service uh, from a specific jurisdiction then you should build uh, compliance into your systems essentially
2: you know i'm sort of thinking while we're talking about why we're having the conversation i mean who who cares which flavor of a technology is is sort of at, at some metaphysical level better right i mean the, the market will decide uh but but I, I think the reason why why people like to think of this as, as a debate uh is because implicit in what you said, and, and I agree with it, the technology is out of the bag, it's very powerful, and I mean the permissionless technology. If, if it's advanced to a state of, of sort of complete deployment and use, it could largely obviate the need for financial institutions as we know them now, right? You, you could see a world in a fantasy future state where everything is peer to peer. And I suppose, If you want that world, then you want there to be permissionless systems and not permissioned systems, because permissioned systems are a creature of this world, and permissionless systems are a creature of this future world. I have no idea if that's a better world to live in. I mean, we've organized society around having banks and financial institutions for hundreds of years. Maybe it isn't the best solution. But it's, it's where we are now. It's where we are for the foreseeable future. and I, So I think largely for our members is they're deploying these technologies. They're, they're simply deploying them to, to do the work they're doing on behalf of their customers now and not because of some feeling one way or the other about the, the greater utility of the technology. They're, they're technology tools like anything else.
0: Uh, Paul, uh, you're... Um... Your company uh, is uh, now a swap execution facility. Correct. Um, uh, that, that was. Uh, can you talk about the process of getting that regulatory designation, and what kind of questions did the regul- regulators ask
1: about the business? <laughs> what questions didn't they ask? Um, yeah, no, no. we've been very lucky working with the CFTC, which is our, our primary regulator, as they've deemed this a commodity. So logically, any derivatives that are listed, traded, and cleared around commodity is under their jurisdiction. So when we started the process about a year and a half ago, a lot was just very basics. about the technology questions such as, like, what happens if the validators or the nodes um, sit in China? And what happens if they decide to stop validating? Um, all very fair questions, but luckily, Bitcoin as a design is very resilient to a lot of those things and tends to find an equilibrium um, when a whole set of computers drops out or you know things like that change. So, you know, becoming a swap execution facility um, and hopefully, you know, we also have a clearing license pending. We sit kind of in the middle of the regulatory aspect because we, while we are huge fans of of a digital currency such as Bitcoin or Ethereum or any others that come out. Um, we obviously have our own KYC responsibilities too, you know. So we we do quite a, quite a bit of research on anybody that wants to trade on our platform. And I think this is where where I think the regulatory kind of landscape will coalesce and is very sensible, because we take U.S. dollar fiat from our customers and they buy tools that can get them access to to Bitcoin, the commodity. We're essentially you know act as an on-ramp for U.S. institutions and, and an off-ramp as well if they want to cash that Bitcoin into into fiat. And so. Obviously, if somebody shows up at our door with $100 million in cash and says, I just want to start an account and buy some Bitcoin, then we, we have a lot of AML concerns that we have to look at at that point, which is very sensible. But elsewhere around the world, as sort of mentioned, the cat's out of the bag. You know, If you're going to a local money changer in Africa and you're only buying $3 worth of Bitcoin for savings or you need to send it somewhere, you know, I think that regulatory burden will be a lot less. But being a SAF, a swap execution facility, has all the classic um, regulatory responsibilities that other, other institutions have.
0: And Ryan, you're you're the you're the fly in the wall on a lot of uh, regulatory discussions. Can can you give a sense of like what 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 kind of feedback are the regulators giving the financial institutions about their tentative experiments in this space?
4: Yeah, I, I have to applaud them at this point for being very open and very proactive in the way the regulators are thinking about this new technology, especially because it, as it came from. Uh, a breakthrough that was kind of riddled with some baggage around money laundering and, and terrorist activity or, or, uh, or more criminal activity around early days of Bitcoin. They have, they've recognized that, and they've seen that while that is, was true, there's also a lot of benefits that this technology can have within the financial ecosystem. So they've taken, in my opinion, a very broad, open, collaborative approach. Uh, the OCC's uh, FinTech white paper, uh, last week, the CFTC has been rather open uh, about and, and, uh, having open dialogue with the industry publicly and with the companies that are there. That is a really good, in my view, first step in creating sound policy. Uh, we also see it at the international level with the Bank for International Settlements and the Financial Stability Board, uh, both looking at the virtual currency piece, but also separately uh, the blockchain and distributed ledger aspect of this. So as the technology is at the international level, like the types of transactions we're doing, that international coordination becomes key and we're seeing the first signs of that as well. Uh,
0: We're gonna open up to questions in a couple minutes. I just want to kind of revisit one one more thing because I just think it's really, um, you know, two of the things that Paul pointed out about um, what were sort sort of really interesting about Bitcoin. Number one, this idea of open innovation. You know, we talked about multi-sig earlier. Multi-sig was a an innovation that was possible because no one needed a, a, a license to write code for Bitcoin. Um, just like Tim Berners-Lee did not need to ask anyone's permission to create the World Wide Web, and that is one of one of the clear benefits of of an open network. The other, uh, which Paul also alluded to, is financial inclusion, and it seems that there's there's a, a, a real tension between financial inclusion and KYC um, worldwide. Um, you know, you, perhaps the the regulatory requirements for a money transmitter are not as high as they are for a bank, but it it, it, um, it is an issue, particularly when people you know immigrants want to send money um, uh, to you know you know to uh, you know a country like like Somalia. So um, to the extent that you know, if if we go towards a permissioned uh, structure, you know, how what what are what are we? You know, how much are we losing of the true the, the, the true benefit of 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 this technology? So, um, I I don't think
3: financial inclusion and KYC are uh, are incompatible. Um, foundationally, I believe uh, persistent portable identity and persistent portable reputation can enable um, roughly seven people around the world to be enfranchised in a global financial system. They can um, establish their own identity. They can upload state-issued documentation as a reputational attribute um, if they have it. Um, And they can have uh, uh, their local bank uh, attach a reputational attestation to this thing and build an identity uh, in that way um, or flesh out an identity in that way for people who don't have access to state-issued ID, and that's that's billions of people. um, They can start doing things, um, create their own reputational attributes like a picture, a name, an email address, Facebook, and interact uh, on a permissionless ledger in a purchase sale transaction, or lending, borrowing, repaying, working together on projects, playing games together, uh, and have reputational attributes um, uh, lodged uh, against their conduct in these different transactions. And so um, by enabling people to uh, establish identity, they will be able to uh, grow their ability to do business on this system. Does, does that identity if, if have to they, be
0: tied to a legal identity?
3: Um, well, if they wish to avail themselves of financial services offered by organizations that have uh, domicile in a jurisdiction, then they're going to have to establish a financial relationship. And, that, and that's where the next layer, KYC, comes into play.
2: I know you were trying to get to questions, but but again, there's there's sort of a false dichotomy here. If the adoption of some permissioned systems doesn't preclude the use of permissionless systems where they make sense, like you know, for example, remittances to the third world, which is you know has long been cited as one of the great use cases for Bitcoin, right? No, it's it's really not an either or. And, and to Joe's point, you, you can see intersections between the systems, right? And there's going to be this sort of evolving web of different applications of the technology that touch each other in ways that, that as that continues to develop and you get, you know, the islands begin to, to reach out and touch each other and you build sort of a network of these networks, it, it'll, it'll probably open up more possibilities, not less. I don't, I don't think anybody sees a world where there is one answer to how this technology is going to be deployed.
0: Blockchain pluralism.
2: I didn't say it, that's but beautiful that's thing. the idea. <laughs>
0: yeah. Questions? And uh, just to remind everyone, um, before you ask your question, uh, wait to be called on. Wait for the microphone to be brought to you so everyone in the room and our online audience can hear. Uh, announce your name and who and, 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 and where you work. Uh, and uh, please phrase your question in the form of a question. Cato's house, Cato's rules. So we have a question over here.
5: Thank you very much for this very uh, insightful discussion. Sorry, I'm I'm Dong He from International Monetary Fund. My question is that isn't there an inherent tension between the incentives uh, of the two types of uh, um, uh, systems? Uh, in the sense that now we have a trusted central party. Uh, The trusted central party, of course, earns a profit by providing uh, the services, like keeping a centralized ledger, like a financial institution. In the decentralized permissionless system, like the Bitcoin, the miners get rewarded by newly minted coins. So in, in the system, in a permissioned system, how do you envisage, to prov- how do you provide enough incentives for the distributed ledgers to work properly, but also as the sufficiently low cost? So is there a boundary in the sense of how large the permissioned system should be uh, in order for the incentives to, to work properly? So I would sure. like so to hear your great
3: On Bitcoin and on Ethereum, uh, you have transaction processors called miners and they are incentivized to uh, validate transactions on the system and to secure the networks and um, the incentivization systems are working very well. Um, Essentially, they get paid uh, every time they come up with a solution that uh, advances the state of the system and that is accepted uh, by consensus um, by all of their peers. Uh, in terms of standing up for-profit businesses on these systems, you can do it in a limited extent on Bitcoin. Um, Bitcoin was really a, a, an experiment in monetary theory that was wildly successful. Uh, at Ethereum, we Get set that out. Sorry, we, we set out to build uh, a decentralized application platform, and that, so that enables the relatively easy development of. Uh, Uh, arbitrary use cases, so if you build a system that offers a service that people find valuable, um, you can charge for that. Uh, There is the notion that if this is all open source and visible on the blockchain, somebody can steal that uh, and run it for um, lower fees or less cost um, and basically drive profits uh, to almost nothing. I think uh, network effects and stickiness um, will enable good businesses to be profitable. So essentially, if you have a bunch of identities in your system, maybe it's a prediction market and there's a deep pool of liquidity there, um, then people are not gonna shift to a competitor unless there's an enormous advantage in shifting.
4: From from an open perspective, Uh, So from Ripple, it's open. Financial institutions freely can join. Uh, It's open source and an open platform. But they one-off select who they would like to essentially run the validation of their payments. We call it consensus. Um, When we built Ripple, we designed it differently in in this concept of mining. There is no mining in Ripple. Just the financial institutions connect, validate each other's transactions, and we move on. There's no reward for it, for doing it. Uh, but it's designed to be a very lightweight process akin to running an email server. There's no reward for doing that, but banks or other institutions run their own or rely on others for, for email routing. Uh, we've designed it in the same way. So we, we find that there is a way we can build or improve upon this, the inefficiencies in mining, particularly in systems that don't have, um, that, that aren't fully um, are, are not designed in the same way. It can be done and operate uh, safely and sufficiently question here
3: thank you my name is Jeff Stewart Uh, my concern or question would be about scalability I understand there's a question about the hard fork and uh, the uh, consensus times Uh, often I think it's R3 has done the uh, comparison against uh, the credit card processing which can do hundreds of thousands of transactions per second and so on thank you so uh, Bitcoin does indeed have a scalability problem, and I think they'll work through it to some extent. There are, um, are state channels or essentially something called the lightning network uh, payment channels uh, that can enable a bunch of off-network processing. Um, there are s- centralized solutions that will attach to the Bitcoin network that will enable you to Uh, pay for a cup of coffee or potentially do microtransactions uh, if you choose to trust them. Uh, Ethereum as a decentralized application platform uh, has taken the notion of scalability very seriously from the start and we've got um, what I consider to be a very exciting uh, roadmap to scalability, uh, both in terms of computation and storage. Um, So essentially, in current blockchain systems, every node, every peer on the network has to process every transaction and store every piece of data. Um, we have a, a two-phase roadmap uh, towards enabling a system where only subsets of transactions uh, need to be processed by subsets of validators and disjoint subsets, uh, uh, validate the validators. Uh, and so it, it's a system called, again, sharding, uh, of address space uh, where we slice up the network and um, still maintain a mechanism so that the entire network uh, stays
1: consistent
0: Paul um, since since you're uh, working with Bitcoin itself what what are your views on on the scalability question
1: yeah you know obviously <clears throat> very um, kind of divisive topic right now within the Bitcoin community like extremely so um, I think much more than most people would have predicted but there are several good proposals, that, you know, as just mentioned. Um, I think the technical challenges um, are, are solvable. You know, just how how the community decides to do it is is really the question at this point, and the kind of precedent that it sets. I mean, we'll st- we'll see some interesting politics in open source. Um, I mean, this is like the first time an open source project has literally been connected to seven billion dollars worth of value in some way or another, right? So, um, there, there are going to be very strong opinions about how to move it move it forward compared to other things, and obviously nobody wants a hard fork, but you know it also has some interesting policy like kind of questions or regulatory questions like for us as a derivatives clearing organization because if there is something like a hard fork then, then what are we listing a derivative on exactly? You know, do, do we look at it as like different grades of the same commodity, like a certain grade of oil versus a different one if we decide to support this, this currency versus the other one that just slightly changed over the last couple of months? So there are some interesting questions there, but I do think it's solvable. I think you know, this will be behind us at some point.
0: Could you use one as a hedge for the other?
1: Yeah, you could, actually. You could trade the spread, just like a lot of folks on Wall Street do for, for other commodities. Mr. Van Volkenberg.
6: Thanks for the fascinating discussion. I'm Peter, uh, who was moderator in the previous panel. Sorry, I'm talking more. Um, so there's been this, this discussion of we'll pick the right architecture for the right use case, whether it's permissioned or permissionless, or we'll let the market decide, which is sort of an extension of that, the efficient use case, the efficient architecture. Are there moral questions here? So what I'm thinking about is we, we talk about identity and reputation and the freedom to contract with other individuals, do the choices of architectures have implications for our liberties, whether they be negative Negative liberties liberties. like our ability to go around unfettered and have contracts, something that perhaps should be protected but maybe isn't under Lochner, or positive liberties like access to, um, to services that are essential to living a good life?
0: Great question. Who's going to tackle it, that one? No.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I I think you pretty much answered your question uh, in the question. uh, Permissionless ledgers are associated with more freedom, the ability to um, have self-sovereign identity and and to be in control of your own assets and uh, to be able to transact with anybody who's in a a similar state of capability. that said there are there's a huge swath of the population that uh, that probably need help uh, that probably need assistance in ensuring that they don't lose their private keys so they don't lose all their assets and their identity uh, and so there will be many services um, built up uh, to offer people whatever um, services or assistance they need so um, uh,
2: can I expand on my note? Please. <laughs> you know, Peter, it's, it's, it's essentially a philosophical question. And there are people who spend a lot of time thinking about the end state of what this technology makes possible. And and, and could you argue that that end state is an objectively better world uh, in that it, it makes possible what, what we're... For the purposes of answering your question, we're calling individual freedoms, right? That the right not to have to rely on a third party to do anything for you is really what you mean. Maybe, but that's nowhere near the the world we live in. And even if we were to get there someday, I'm not sure that in every sense it's better. I mean, the the the, and I'm not. I don't want to defend the financial institutions here. Uh, because I don't think there's anything to defend them against. But uh, I will point out that that institutions usually serve valuable functions. I mean, for example, banks take in money so they can loan it out, so you can have capital to go and fund new enterprises. That's a useful function. Could we, in some distant future state, have all that happen on some global permissionless ledger and obviate the need for the world's financial institutions? Maybe, but in that same future state world, we've probably done away with government and it's some utopian society I can't even imagine because it's so different than where we are today. So I don't, I, I, you know, maybe, I, I don't want to either, I don't want to say I'm conceding your point because I'm not debating it. If it's true, it's true so far off that I don't think it's immediately relevant to thinking about how we deploy
3: these technologies. Yeah, and even on a global permissionless ledger, um, if you stand up a business and it's in your business model to Uh, know your customer in some way um, and effectively you're maintaining a permissioned ledger internally on that permissionless ledger Um, and so use case driven uh, we need lots of options for building appropriate systems, lots of choice. And that sounds like freedom by the way, the more choices you have the better.
1: Exactly. Hi. Um, so I'm Andrea Castillo from the Mercatus Center. This has been a super interesting discussion. So thank you all. Um, I'm still kind of confused about why exactly there is an elephant in this discussion. Um, so it seems like if you want to have a consortium of you know people or organizations and build a permissioned blockchain and you know get great talent, you know go for it and it succeeds or fails. And beyond this kind of um, maybe conflict of visions over you know how technology should be used. Um, is there perhaps something about either permissioned or permissioned um, ledgers that are rivalrous with each other, whether it's just um, you know, attracting talent, or is this like a marketing question, or is there something um, that might need to change technically with one or the other project that could influence you know, one or the other in a negative way? So if you could speak more to that.
4: Yeah, I'll jump in if you don't mind. Um, at Ripple's view, we don't see one winner in this equation. There's so many different use cases even within use cases, there's so many different architectures you could use. So our vision for the future is one where it's a very diverse ecosystem of different architectures and use cases throughout. Like, there's not a debate in our mind. Um, we, we realized this about a year and a half ago, and what that means is interoperability between these systems becomes key. Otherwise, we just build another set of, of silos, of, of walled gardens, and we have the same structural inefficiencies we have today. Um, there, there is a lot of work own interoperability right now between permissioned and permissionless systems. Uh, they, the A key one that Ripple is supportive of is one called Interledger. Um, it is a, a protocol, it's not a ledger, it's not a blockchain, but it merely syncs two different payment systems together. Um, so it can be a centralized system like we use today with something like Bitcoin, or to decentralized or to centralized. All you have to need to use it is an escrow account. Um, so it becomes this connectivity between financial systems. We've gifted it to W3C, the web standards body uh, for the World Wide Web. They have a web payments working group that is now working on and focused on interledger and interoperability between payments to essentially create this connectivity between all the different systems that everyone is building, be it centralized or decentralized. I I agree that I I don't see an elephant in the room. I don't see really a debate to be had. You design a system that's best for your use case and now we ha- we're building tools to create interoperability between those.
3: Yeah, so there is no no similar elephant in the internet application space. Um, it's use case driven. If you if your customers uh, are on the public permissionless internet, you build your application that way. If your uh, users are within a corporation, you build uh, on your corporate in- intranet. Um, I, I think the reason this whole issue developed is because Bitcoin. Um, as a monetary experiment was uh, adopted early by crypto anarchists um, and and, uh, a lot of uh, philosophical and uh, religious issues were attached to it. And so there was a lot of, as more sophisticated businesses came into the space, there was a lot of pushback um, from those initial adopters um, who said "This this is wildly inappropriate to use our Technology um, for building a business.
0: Blasphemous. It was it was viewed as a as, right. as a form of blasphemy. Yeah. Um, but although I, I and 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 uh, I I apologize if I've been framing things in an overly binary way. But what I, what I, the one thing I, I do I, I do think there is a legitimate question to be asked about um, if you take away certain aspects of it, what are you left with? So if you take a, if you take away this Potential for, you know, unlimited innovation. If you take away the unlimited participation, then I mean, and I I think there are clearly there are potential benefits because otherwise the financial institutions wouldn't be spending so much time and money on this. But um, it's it's good to articulate what those remaining benefits are.
3: Yeah. So if you. take away the ability to trust the system, um, then you're back in the old architecture where a small set of actors can manipulate the system. You you know, it's funny. You know,
2: nobody asks Boeing why it makes a change implementing new technology in its supply chain and to defend the rationality of that, right? Think about what the the financial institutions and the large enterprises are doing, as and, and, and by the way, I, it, it's it's worth saying this to, to give this flavor. You know, sitting in our offices, we have people from our banks seconded in our offices. We have tech people, we have business people. The level of excitement and energy is really incredible. We have tables of of devs deving and business analysts analyzing and and really working at the at the the nitty-gritty level of trying to figure out where to make this technology work and there's these aha moments and they get excited. It's it's taking new technology like like, any business does at any time in its evolution and figuring out how to apply it. There's no religion behind it where it makes sense, where it does something cool or saves money, we're gonna use it. Where it doesn't, we, we won't and there's no justification Beyond that, I mean, if, if nothing else, if, if, a, if a financial institution reduces costs, you know, producing a better return for its shareholders, great. You know, there, there, there's, no, there, there's no philosophical underpinning to, to how the, at least the, the institutions we work with are thinking about this.
0: And, and is, it, that that's actually brings up an interesting thought, which is, to, to what extent is blockchain sort of a, a Trojan horse, in this, and I mean that in a good way, in the sense that, you know, the last year and a half, the big story in, in, in financial services and banking has been fintech, which is sort of a broad term for new technologies, new entrepreneurial companies that includes the whole blockchain space, but it's a lot of other stuff. And maybe all all this talk about distributed ledgers is just forcing a modern a, a belated modernization and a belated hard look at the, the back-end systems that and maybe they don't end up using blockchain or they don't end up using DLT, but th- this, this this is what just got the conversation started. Is, is, is that, a, is that a, a, a valid theory?
3: Absolutely true that uh, uh, the financial services industry is built on um, 30, 40 years of layered information technology and and a lot of it's pretty broken and slow and inefficient. Um, so. Um The industry will benefit um, from uh, this exploration of the technology, but I, I really think the, uh, the industry was driven uh, towards this technology by um, their concern for being disrupted. so the, these technologies, especially Ethereum, um, is potentially a force for a universal disintermediation, um, and so As a financial intermediary, uh, you need to be concerned about that. Um, And I'm not saying that intermediation is a bad thing. It's a great thing. Uh, It's a great thing if it uh, adds information to a transaction. It's a great thing if it uh, reduces the costs and frictions of a transaction. But uh, um, often once you've interposed yourself in a transaction as an intermediary, you tend to try and increase the frictions and increase the amount of value that you take from that transaction. And so this massively decentralized context, uh, context is uh, um, a perfect mechanism for proper price discovery for the value of intermediation.
0: I think we'll have more time for one more question before lunch. Sir. Hi there. I'm... Um, <clears throat>
3: Sir. Rob Caballero from Coin Bird Media here in uh, D.C. And my question is, um, so blockchain technology and, and specifically Bitcoin, because it's you know, the biggest and most visible of all the different, uh, different technologies that are out there. Everybody who is interested in these technologies comes to it for some reason or a collection of reasons. It's sound money or it's virtual gold or it's a payment system or it's an interesting socio-financial economic experiment, or it's about personal autonomy, decentralization. If you were to put all of these motivations on a big piece of paper, you put check boxes next to them, and hand them out to everybody in this room, and also among yourselves, what do you think the most commonly checked term or motivation would be that's common to everyone or nearly everyone in here?
0: In here? Because that might be different from uh, some other conferences. Uh, uh, we'll go with in here. Okay. So I I think one reason why we
3: have lots of trouble explaining this technology is that it's complex in the sense that it can be virtually anything to anybody. Uh, So depending on your perspective, depending on your use case, um, you can describe these technologies uh, in those contexts. So uh, I I see so many different motivations for coming into this space.
4: I I see it from the perspective of We can move data very easily, in real time, immediately around the world. Why can't we move value the same way as well? And I think a lot of banks, but also individuals, have come to this technology as seeing, this is what could underpin what we call an internet of value. We can move value like the way data is moved on the internet. That has been a motivation, and then that unlocks all the same benefits we've seen from the internet today within financial services.
0: question was, is decentralization a core component for the transfer for that, uh, for that value? Oh, it's th- a think great way the so.
4: question ended on. Certainly so.
0: All right, we, uh, we are out of time, so we have to put a bookmark in the conversation, but this has been a great panel. Um, uh, lunch will be held on the second floor in the George Yeager Conference Center. Go up the spiral staircase. Restrooms are on the second floor on your way to lunch. Look for the yellow wall. And I want to thank this panel. This has been a really fascinating talk. Yeah,
6: and Mark, so, thank you for my